My conversation today with Jill Purse is a real deep one and I recommend you listen through. We get into everything from epigenetics, how we can be of sound body and mind, how we can heal the trauma that's come through in our genes and our ancestry through various healing modalities, including sound and chanting, family constellations. This woman is remarkable. overcome the separation this delusion of separation we know it's a delusion we live by it however we have to because everything is based on it but nevertheless in order to be present we have to overcome that separation and so this form of chanting is the is the absolutely key way of overcoming the separation and 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 being becoming one welcome to living medicine the podcast I'm Selena Van Orden, your host, and I'm an Ayurvedic doctor living and working in the UK. This podcast is focused on having meaningful conversations which expand our awareness on wellness. By applying the wisdom of Ayurveda as a living medicine, philosophy, and interpretation of nature's intelligence, we'll seek to understand healing in the modern era. My guest today is the brilliant Jill Purse. Recognized internationally as having pioneered both sound and ancestral healing movements, teaching all over the world since the 1970s. She rediscovered ancient vocal techniques, developing the spiritual potential of the voice for healing and meditation. She's also one of the first people to introduce family constellations as a means to healing family and ancestral trauma. She lives in London with her husband Rupert Sheldrake and their two sons, musician Cosmo and author and biologist Merlin Sheldrake. Welcome, Jill. It's so lovely to have you here. Thank you very much. <laughs> One of the main principles of my Ayurvedic practice and lineage is healing through sound and mantra. This is something I, not something I can talk to many people about. So to get to talk to you, the British trailblazer of this subject, is an exciting thing. So can I ask you, how did you first come to learn about the powers of sound healing? Oh, my goodness. Um, it's my life story. Um, but actually, I, I think the, my very first experience was when I was a young child. I had a very eccentric father and um, he, he was a surgeon, but he, he, he liked to do things at night when people were going to bed. And so on one occasion, we were in Ireland where he was from. He was from the north. And um he wanted to visit this island. I think it was in his church. We were staying in County Mayo, and, and um, this is a, a, an hour or two away by boat. And, and so we set off in the middle of the night, and the only other people in the boat were these old three old women going home, and my brother and I and my father and mother. And, and a storm blew up, and it was quite clear we were going to drown, and we were absolutely terrified. So this was the beginning, really. And... Uh, all of a sudden, these three women standing at the back of the boat in black started a kind of wailing chant. And in that moment, I still remember it clearly, my terror turned to ecstasy and bliss. And 
suddenly the wind subsided, the waves abated, and, and we arrived. We arrived safely. And, and so this was my first experience of, of the voice as a transformative tool. I mean, it transformed our emotions hugely from terror to ecstasy and bliss. And it, it transformed the elements themselves. It did, it, it, you know, the wind subsided with the sound of their voice. So, so this was my first experience of resonance. And, and I, I, you know, now years later, I realize everything is resonant. I mean, it's really the only thing we can actually say about anything is that it's all resonant. And so resonance, everything is resonance. And so our voices are the way that we as humans are able to tune into the resonance of the resonant universe. And, and there are so many stories wow. of the creation of the world through sound. You know, we, again, it's all sort of, I suppose you could say, metaphorical. In the beginning was the word, it's, it's sound. In the beginning was the ohm, it's sound. In the beginning of the, is the, the first seven vibrations of Ogotameli amongst the griot. And, and, you know, all these traditions have, have the beginning of the world as, as a sonorous process. I say process because it's, not, it's, a, it's an ongoing process. And so, so sound is our way of, of, um, of, of our voice is our way of tuning in. Wow. And the transformative power of sound that you say, this idea of, of hearing these voices and that you were, the moved, your experience was moved from terror to ecstasy. And this is our experience of life, right? Rather than, this is what, you know, how do we actually experience life? What, it's so subtle, these things, but that you see, that that it transformed the elements as well. I mean, gosh. So I realized. I mean, the, the thing is that you know, as as human beings, we 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 our senses, you know, smell, taste, touch, sight. We we see something, and we are reminded of what we haven't done, and therefore we have all these, so we have these regrets of the past and then the dreads of the future of things we have to do because we forgot to do them. And so every sensory input moment is a signal uh, of, of, of plumbing it up, plummeting us into, into regrets of the past and dreads of the future. And all, the core of all meditation techniques is how to be present because this is where the ecstasy lies. So being present is the core of every spiritual tradition. Every spiritual practice has one way or other of, of inducting us into presence. And it's not easy. But if you're chanting, if you're making a sound, and, and the simpler the sound, the better, on, on one note even, if you're making a sound, then you can only make a sound in the present. But you can you can make a sound in the present and um, and have feelings about it or, or you know uh, remember or activate yourself or, or think of things to do or obligations um, at the same time unless you listen to the sound that you're making while you're making it. So if you're making a sound and you're listening to the sound you're making while you're making it, then you create a circuit of attention. And then there isn't, there aren't any sort of wild bits of you wandering about trying to make trouble or anticipating what you ought to do. And so this is the key, that it's actually more important to, to, to listen to the sound that you're making than to make the sound that you're listening to almost. Um, 
so it's a process of integration where you actually are doing the thing that you're mindful of. You know, we hear all, all the time how mindfulness, in fact, I heard that mindfulness now is the sort of the, the best way of, of healing on the national health now, they say. So mindfulness is a way of being mindful of, of mindful of things as they happen. It's a way of being present. But this, using the voice, is a way of doing the thing that you're present with and so it's much easier and everybody can make sounds it's very uh, I mean I teach all sorts of vocalizing and when I first started and I realized that the voice had been hijacked by the professionals you know my mother was a professional musician and I grew up in a house with three grand pianos and um, uh, so you know I realized that, that that sacred music had been hijacked by the by the by the by the professionals by people who a professional is somebody who pays to uh, you know be, is paid to do something whereas amateur interestingly the word amateur means to love something so it means that if you're not a professional you love something with the inference that if you are a professional you maybe don't love it so i was brought up in this in this house of, of professional musicians and um i realized that that actually you know with the with the sort of development of musical literacy, um, the sacred chant had been hijacked, and and so I realised that that actually there needed to be a situation where people who felt that they couldn't sing, or all <clears throat> those who could sing both and both extremes from people who said told to stand at the back and mouth it as you know from childhood onwards to professional musicians, especially professional musicians who are using instruments, <clears throat> so you know, everything in between. So so giving people a chance to uh, use their voices in the most fundamental way um, seemed to be essential. And so I was looking <clears throat> to find out what was the most essential way we could use our voices. What was, what was the most essential form of chant? And I realized that it's not using words because as long as you're chanting words, you are in this discursive modality, you're in time. Because, you know, words are embedded in a sentence which have a, heart, a past, a middle and a future. Um, and they're heading somewhere from somewhere else. And so um, there had to be some form of chant which, um, which wasn't embedding you in time. But at the same time was almost non-cultural you know I, I also use cultural I'll talk about that in a minute but but it had to be also non-cultural and so I came across a form of chanting which actually is found in Central Asia only um, but the form that I do it in is not the form that that is done in Central Asia and it's a form of chanting where you chant on a single note and um, you change the shape of your resonant cavities so in such a way that you actually amplify, make louder the sounds that are contained within that sound. Now, this is very important because in the West, we retuned our music in the 17th century when everybody got pianos. You know, the, the keyboard instruments became very popular in the 17th century and, and the tuning there was problematic because uh, when you've got a fixed tuning system, as you do with a keyboard, you go from uh, traditionally you would have gone from one note to the note, five notes above it, five notes above that, five notes above that, and you would eventually uh, you overlap it. Instead of reaching the octave, you actually overlap the octave by a quarter of a semitone, and this means that you, if you if you try and do this form of tuning on on with a fixed keyboard like 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 you do soundboard like you do with a piano, 
it's horrible. You can't do it. And so um, in the 17th century, there was this big conundrum, you know, what do we do about tuning? And so music was retuned in the West, and it's called a well-tempered scale. And what happened was that the spiral, because it's overlap, was made into a circle, the everlasting dull round, if you like. So what happened was that the intervals in the um, within the octave were all made a little bit bigger or smaller so that it could accommodate this overlap. And so Western music since the 17th century has been out of tune and we export our music to all other countries in the world. That's the nature of sort of Western music. We export it. And so this out of tuneness has become a real problem. And so I wanted to um, provide provide if you like may i just pause just because i want to just go into something you've just said so what you're saying is that what we have now based i guess popular music on is something that is fundamentally out of tune correct is non-harmonic it's out of tune so and, and this is so interesting so um what we're talking about is how we harmonize ourselves. So in Ayurveda, we are in at ease, in harmony with ourselves, in balance with ourselves, or we are in dis-ease, in imbalance, in disharmony with ourselves. And so what what as I see it, music is like a medicine to get us in balance. But what you're saying here, therefore, is that what since the 17th century, we've all been slightly out of out of key, like out of tune. <laughs> Out of tune. If you well, if you sing a cappella, if you sing on your own, or if uh, you you can be in tune, but if you tune with an orchestra, if you sing with an orchestra or with an instruments, then you will be out of tune. The only instruments that can be in tune are, key, uh, are stringed instruments, but they're they're usually accompanied by other instruments which have fixed tuning, and so they tend to you know use the Western tuning. So, but the point is, what was thought at the time was that we can make we can make this fudging if you like um but nobody's going to notice it and and people don't notice it it's very it's very little a quarter of a semitone over the octave you know making each note a little bit wider or narrower the interval rather um most people absolutely don't notice it but if you think about the notion of being sound in mind and body you know being true and and the induction of order which is one of the things about sound which i'll come to is so important um this out of tuneness is very important and but but and bach, but bach celebrated this well-tempered piano he said that with the well the, the preludes and fugues for the well-tempered clavier so what he showed was that now you could play in every single octave, in every single key, sorry, which you couldn't do before. You couldn't play in all these different keys with this dodgy tuning. So the point was that it, it was it was thought that nobody would really notice. But if you think about sound as being really about coherence and integration, then it's very important. And so this form of chanting where you chant on a single note, but you change the shape of the resonant cavity, what that means is that what you hear are the harmonics or the overtones above the note that you're making. And these are in tune. And that was, so when I came, when I wanted to bring bring into being some form of, um, of chant, some form of vocal usage in groups where people could come together, whether they were musicians or not, where the sound that they were making was truly in tune, 
this is what I came to because I realized, first of all, you know, we didn't want words. I mentioned that earlier. Um, but also it was important to have a form of sound which was actually in tune um, so that we could become sound in mind and body. And this form of chanting was as unknown to people who had been told to stand at the back and mouth it as it was to professional musicians. Now it's much more well known. But when I started, it was completely well known. And I, I found it in two different ways. I, I found it through working with um, Tibetan lamas who uh, who used this form of chanting um, as part of their pujas. Uh, not everybody, but some. And I found it, I lived and worked with a very well-known German composer in the early 70s, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen. And he had uh, written a piece in 1968 called Stimmung for six singers. And and the first thing when I went to live with him in Germany was we went on tour with this piece over over North, all the east coast of North America. And this is a piece where six singers actually chant only on one note, a B flat in, as it happens, but they uh, amplify the harmonics. And so um, I learned this technique from the Western art music tradition, as well as from this archaic spiritual tradition. So in a sense, I had these, these, these both, you know, it was inducted into me in, in both ways. And so I felt very able to then transmit it to other people because I had received it, you know, directly through both ways, um, both routes, wow. if you like. This is the thing, because like I was saying at the beginning that I've, I I can't talk about this stuff with many people because it isn't something that's really talked about in, in the West much. And as I say, you're a pioneer in it. But is, so when you mentioned that the note that there were the six, the, the B flat, do different notes have different healing capacities as you see them? I don't know. I I, I mean, there are some people who, who feel that. But I, for me, you know, in the Indian tradition, you you spend years sort of finding your own sound. And then, you know, whereas in the West, you know, the singing teachers, classical singing teachers try and stretch you up and down. And um, I, I don't know if specific notes, I think it's much more complex than that. I, th I think the the real the real power of the voice is about using it as a key to be present, and being in tune. and And so the harmonics are relative. So wherever you start, the first harmonic is is always the octave. The next is always the fifth. The next is the fourth. The major third and minor third, and so on. So these intervals are what are, are fixed. And so. For me, it's not so much where you start, but it's just the intervals that you, the true intervals that you um, invoke with this form of chanting that are the most important things. And so would you be able to define, so um, the overtone chanting, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what it is? Well, I think the best way is to demonstrate it, really. As I say, it's it's chanting on one note, so you're not distracted by melody. So you've reduced you've reduced it to its very fundamental. So you're not distracted by melody, but what you do is you you open up the note to reveal the constituent parts um, of the of the sound itself. So every sound is made up of all these other notes. So whenever we hear a sound, we are able to identify the source of that sound. 
um, we can say that's our mother, our grandmother. That's that's a um, a frigid fridge. That's that's you know our neighbor. That we that's a flute. That's a piano. That's a, so we are able to identify the sound based on not just a single note. If they all made the same note, you'd still be able to identify them. But but every note is a complexity of notes. It's not just the one note. It's a note. It's the note. Um, and all of its harmonics together. And so um, if you're composing for an orchestra, you choose different instruments because they have a different quality. This is called the timbre or the quality of the sound. Um, or in German, it's interesting, it's called the Klangfarbe, the color of the sound. So it's really the color of the sound. And so every sound has its own color. And so what that is, is um, the sound itself, the note itself, um, combined with all the harmonics and ha which harmonics determines the, the, where, what the sound is. So your voice will have, will have a different composition to mine. And, and so that's what enables us through this identifying the color of the sound to identify the source of the sound. So when we hear a sound, it's very rarely just one if you have a tuning fork or 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 a bell, that's that's or actually a sine wave really is is the pure sound. But we never we never really hear sine waves because we have we hear this complexity of sounds, which are the sound itself plus all of its other notes, um, harmonics, its constituent notes mm. uh, in different uh, loudnesses, and that's what enables us to identify them. Um, and this is what, you know, in language, so when I'm teaching this method, you know, with language, what where we make these other sounds is through vowel sounds. So every vowel sound is a different harmonic. And, and so it's in, the, it's in the vowel sounds that is the magic. And it's the most ordered aspect of sound. And, you know, in all the sort of literature about development of consciousness, we found these 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 descriptions. You know, the key, the key one is diamond mind. So a diamond is is um, the same as a lead pencil, but it's just the atoms are ordered. You know, so it's carbon atoms that you get in the the lead pencil. Um, but in a diamond, what what changes the the nature is the order, and and so a diamond is 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 completely transparent and can cut everything else. So this induction of order is 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 mm. seen as incredibly important in the development of consciousness. And so another reason why this form of chanting is so powerful is that you're it's the most ordered form of chanting because it's it is ordered, you know, it's not disordered. Um so when you when you're making vocal sounds you, you, or when you with language for example, you have these division of the sound into vowels and consonants and vowels are uh, pure sine waves if you like or harmonics and consonants are noise sound and and they're used to interrupt and punctuate the vowel sounds and so language is a combination of both but when you're when you're extending the voice you can't extend the, the, the noise sounds, you only accept, extend the vowel sound. So when you move from speaking into singing, you're moving into a magical realm because what you're doing is you're extending that part of the sound, which is supremely ordered. Wow. I just want to underline what you just said there because that is so beautiful. And I don't think it will have crossed people's minds before that the, 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 the vowel is the pure harmony and then that the consonant is the interrupt and the harmonic. And then the consonant is the interrupter. Yes. It's, so the vowel is the harmonic. It's a, the, the vowel is, if you like, it's like the sine wave. It's the pure tone. 
and and the the consonant you know where you you close off the teeth and the tongue and the lips you interrupt with a noise sound so if you analyze these sounds electronically you can see that the consonant sounds are noisy which means disordered or chaotic and the vowel sounds are pure tone and supremely ordered. They're like you know, the sine waves, they're, they're supremely ordered. And so as soon as you start singing, what you're extending are the pure tones. You're extending the vowel sounds. You can't extend a consonant sound, so you can't extend the noise. So when you move from speaking, which is you know fairly mundane, if you like, to singing, you're moving into a magical realm of the induction of order. Wow, yes. So if I may just, in what I have learned from the ancient philosophies I've been taught in Ayurveda and with my teachers, it's that we all come from this pure essence, this prakruti in the Sankhya philosophy. So there's this, this sort of supreme essence that we all come from, and then we've all deviated in some way throughout maybe lifetimes, depending on our belief systems, but as they see it through lifetimes, we've moved from this complete order to disorder. And as my teacher sees it, he sees people as bundles of energetic noise. And so he listens to the frequency of a person and then sees how what their resonance is, essentially what you're talking about, and then how to bring them back into this state of balance. And so what you're saying is then through the work that you do, this is this is that, is it's this bringing back into balance into that original state of being absolutely and i'd love to hear some i'd love to hear some if um for you this overtone chanting it's wow okay i i'll can try and also i've got a recording um I never used to have recordings because I used to, when I taught, I always felt everything had to fly in the wind, you know, and be in the moment. And But with COVID, um, I started teaching online. And, and my son, as you know, is Cosmo is a musician. And 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 so what, I, what we did was Merlin and Cosmo and Rupert and I and another friend um, recorded the sound and Cosmo recorded it for me. Um, and so when I'm teaching, I actually play this through my computer. And uh, so I can also try playing that. I don't know whether how it will sound to you. But so but first I'll do it individually. I'll just do it myself um, and see how it sounds. So that was Jill, Jill singing live, and that was that was completely incredible. So you were creating different. It was sounded like there were more than one person singing just there. So I was just making one note, but I was I changing the shape of my vocal cavity to uh, allow um, the the the, the um, harmonics to develop in the space they like to develop and resonate. It's all about resonance, which means to re-sound. And you, to, in order to re-sound, you have to contain the sound long enough that it can sound again. And so I was changing the shape of the cavity so that each sound could develop and become audible. Um, 
And um, so you could hear all these other sounds, all these other harmonics. And I play a group. I don't know whether you will hear this. I don't know how it'll sound. But when you were just singing, I have to say, when you were doing that, I just wanted to close my eyes and be in that sound. It was so powerful. And so is this what is this? So this is what you teach is, is it that is for people to learn how to do this themselves? in order to bring themselves back into balance. Yes, this is one of the one of the things that they teach um and and it brings it it's an induction of order, you know, which as I said is about the development of consciousness. And and also when you make sound, you know, every 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 form has its own sound. Um so sound creates boundaries, but also you can, you know, if you have a wine glass and you you wind your wet finger around the rim, the wine glass will sing a note. If you have a high enough quality wine glass and an accurate enough voice you can shatter the um the wine glass with its own note so the sound is the key to its own dissolution so sound creates form and it dissolves form and so when you're chanting in a group you dissolve the boundaries between people and you very quickly can become a a, a, a unit which is one of the most powerful things to do uh, as a group I'll just play you. I don't know if this is going to come. Let me play you a group chant. Gosh, this is so deep, Jill. I mean, this. I don't know about everyone else, but that just takes me into the most relaxed state. My goodness me. I just want to I just want to close my eyes and sink into it. It's so beautiful. It's a very powerful meditation. Oh, and you're plugging into something. All the things that you're talking of, it's that you're plugging into something um the basis of everything right it's something completely like beyond cosmic it's the sort of roots of our being is that right it is and uh, but it's also not only that but not and uh, not only you becoming in tune or, or re-enchanted if you like um but you're you're also um doing a very powerful yogic technique so in order to do it it's it you're the kind of breathing that you're it's it requires is a form of yoga and so you're doing a very powerful technique as well um as 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 making this sort of integrative sound and you know you're you're being present so you're making a sound and listening to the sound that you're making while you're making it you're doing a yogic technique you're tuning in with other people i mean there are so many reasons why it's powerfully and then you're in tune because you're not singing you know out of tune you're actually invoking the the harmonics which are always in tune with each other and so there are so many reasons why it's a very powerful technique i mean it sounds to me like like the most important medicine because also I guess in sort of modern scientific terms 
by any breath work, it it simulates a vagus nerve as well, doesn't it? And we're all we're all hearing. I know, and and, and the voice particularly stimulates the vagus nerve. And um, this is, you know, which which everybody says is very important for mental and physical health because it's the wanderer; it goes everywhere. It also so not only does chanting stimulate the vagus nerve more than just breathing actually but but it is a way of conscious breathing but um but but particularly powerful for that but it also stimulates nitric oxide which which is a a, a vasal dilator so you know it lowers your blood pressure and it stimulates all the brain the the happy chemicals you know so dopamine oxytocin serotonin endorphins all these happy chemicals you know that we that make us feel good is it stimulates them and it reduces cortisol and so it, you know, there are all these other reasons why it's a very, very powerful thing to do, healing wise. Gosh, and this what you said at the beginning also of this point between, between you know, you can chant and you do, and then you need to listen in order to be in it. So this, it's the sort of epitome of being in the moment, of being receptive and doing, and then you meet that middle point. It's like a magic trick almost. Exactly. So you're doing the thing. Yes, exactly. And it's a simple one. So you're doing the thing that you're being aware of. So you're, you're, you're harnessing your attention into that which you're doing. So there's no separation, really. Um, and, and actually, that separation is really key, you know, because normally we, I see you as separate and, and I either want more of you leading to attachment or I, I lumbered with you and I don't want you leading to aversion all based on ignorance, which is ignoring what is, that there is no separation. So how do we overcome the separation, this delusion of separation? We know it's a delusion. We live by it, however, we have to, because everything is based on it. But nevertheless, in order to be present, we have to overcome that separation. And so this form of chanting is the is the absolutely key way of overcoming the separation and 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 being becoming one. And, and also you're vibrating all your organs, you're vibrating, you know, you're activating everything within your body. Um, so that's a whole other angle to it. Um, and then you're, you're doing very conscious breathing. So we all know now that, that, that um, you know, extending the out breath is absolutely key. And, and when you're chanting, you chant on the out breath and you're extending the out breath and you're working with the out breath um, particularly strongly. And so it's it's the way of making your breathing conscious. And the out breath is letting go as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's release. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in, in medieval times, Boethius talked about uh, musica mundana, musica humana, and musica instrumentalis. And musica... Um, Mundana is what we now think of as astronomy, music of the world. Musica humana we now think of as psychology. And musica instrumentalis is music as we know it. And the aim of musica instrumentalis was always to harmonize human music with the world music. And, and, and I think that that's absolutely right. You know, that's what, that's what music does, and especially the voice, because that's our own way of making sound you know that's our own way of doing it i think you know instrumental music is fine but our own voice is the key because we are an instrument and and when you use your voice you're activating all the cells in your body you're vibrating your body and uh, working with your mind and and you're you're releasing your emotions and, and so many so many reasons why it's powerful 
we are an instrument. And this again goes back to what you were saying of resonance as well. If we're, we're looking to be in tune with nature, be in tune with one another, be in tune. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, this is how we become in tune because our music isn't in tune. And so, and so, you know, when we, when we listen to other music, it's very subtle, but it isn't in tune. And so this is why I, I chose this particular form of chanting, because it's the only form of chanting which is actually in tune. That's utterly fascinating. And how does this then, how does this work then fit in with your family constellations work that you also do? Well, so... Can you I, tell us a bit about family constellations? Absolutely. I mean, I started this because I, I started in my longer workshops, I started doing ceremonies for the ancestors where people would go back through their ancestral lines and honour their ancestors and all sorts of utterly amazing things started happening for people. And so I got more and more involved in it and more specific. And so now what I do is a form of family constellations, but I, I work ceremonially and with sound. So between each person working, um, the issue holder, if you like, I, I you know, I, I amplify the family and ancestral field. So family constellations is a field phenomenon. It's it's tuning into the field of our family and ancestors, which we all have. And it's working um, across time and space. So it's working with transgenerational traumas. So, for example, if anything happens in previous generations in your family, which it does in all of our families, interruptions so early death suicides death in battle death in childbirth um, incarceration being locked up in hospital accidents um, having abortions being addicted giving children up for adoption losing siblings um, um, injustices emigrations um, uh, you, you name it really it, it, anything which was societally inappropriate and therefore family secrets which we uh, which has have been kept in order to be not considered societally inappropriate so you know having you know previously illegitimacy of course nothing is inappropriate societally now but traditionally it, it was and so all of these kind of are interruptions in what might notionally be considered a development of a, of a life and so what happens when these interruptions happen in people's lives is that there's a kind of trauma which gets fixed in the field, which is highly conservative and which goes down from generation to generation unless somebody dissolves it by working with it. And so this, is, this jives very much with something which is the hot subject in biology at the moment in the life sciences called epigenetics which is the inheritance of acquired characters. So people like Lamarck, Lysenko and Darwin and all these people have always felt that, that the things that are acquired in our lifetime are then inherited. So in, in the early 70s, I did a research fellowship with Maurice Wilkins, who was one of the three who got the DNA prize for discovering DNA. And at that time, everything was considered to be in the DNA, you know, everything. And, and so if you mentioned the inheritance of acquired characters, you know, people, oh, okay. so, but, but nowadays it's, it's the hot subject and, and physical scientists are trying to make it a physical thing. How, what, what is it that turns the genes on and off and so on? My husband, Rupert Sheldrake has a theory of morph resonance, which sees the thing as a kind of resonance phenomenon where um, these things are, passed down through resonance not through physical you know changes and 
And so they've discovered now that um, with nematode, so so scientists like to work with things with with short generations, with long short generations, so you can have long many generations, short lifetime. So you can have many generations and see changes. And so fruit flies, nematode worms are the key things that people experiment with. They've now discovered that um, with nematode worms, that there are... Why is that, Jill? Because they, they have a short lifetime lifespan. So you can see things going through many lifetimes um, very quickly. Um, whereas, you know, you have to wait with us, you know, for 70 years and or whatever it is, five school years, six, whatever school years. And but, but, you know, fruit fly don't last very long and nor do nematode worms. And what they discovered is that with nematode worms, um, these, these changes have been recorded 50 generations on. So, so this work is something you know so people who've suffered through racial trauma you know the holocaust or famines in the holland in the war or the 19th century in sweden or irish famine or any of these things they found that descendants of these people have got not only emotional and psychological changes and problems but also physical and chemical changes and and so this this work just shows it very very clearly and so how it works is really fascinating so and I've been doing it online. I've been doing it for 25 years face to face. And it, it works online just as well because it's non-spatial, it's non-temporal. So you're seeing the family through time and space. You're seeing through generations and through multiple the eyes of multiple members of the same family. And so how it works is that if you were the issue holder, you would choose either from the room, naive representatives, or from a screen if it's online, um, people to represent your mother, your father, for example, your siblings, uh, anybody who lived with you and so on. And then um, they would immediately, somehow, miraculously tune into the person they're representing and reflect that back to you. And and that is utterly amazing how that happens. I, I, the, how I saw it happen most clearly was with my son, Cosmo, once when he was representing and I had these two brothers who'd worked with me a lot. And one of the brothers, he was doing a PhD at Cambridge Music, and, and, and he was the kind of less vulnerable one. And then there was the vulnerable one, and they both worked with me a lot. And they were both in the room. And the less vulnerable one chose my son Cosmo to represent his brother who was in the room. And I could see Cosmo, um, who's very cheerful, um, go suddenly kind of slump. And then I could see his rational mind, you know, I'd known he's my son, I knew him, going, this is ridiculous, I'm Cosmo. And then he'd slump again, and then it was ridiculous, I'm Cosmo. And he'd go from this com compelled, compelling um, sort of presence of this other person to himself until he realised the rational mind bringing him back saying this is ridiculous and then he realized that he just let go and then he became this other person so this is what happens so so you then have these representatives um of these other people in your in your in your family and ancestry and then i as the guide work out you know what how all these interruptions through time have affected individual members of the family and i'll bring in extra people if they're relevant grandparents or uncles or whatever and then we will, in a sense, make good. So we will, if somebody has abused you, the temptation is always to separate yourself and send them into, into outer darkness, cut the ties. But 
if you do that, usually that person's quite powerful. They're out there making trouble, and humans have to belong. It's it's an uh, it's a human need, and so unless that person belongs in the field in their rightful place, they're out there making trouble. So rather than exile them, cut off communication and cut off connection with that person, you actually honor them. And I say honor rather than forgive because forgiveness is problematic because notionally we tend to put ourselves above the person that we're forgiving. You know, you're poor little worm down there, you know, I'm, uh, I forgive you. But if you honor somebody, you're putting them above yourself and it's much, much harder and much more powerful. So that way you're able to integrate this person who's abused you and they, they can take their rightful place again in the field of the family and ancestors and look kindly on you and they stop making trouble. And so the work is really about integrating the outliers, those who have been forgotten, those who've been abused, disliked, dishonored, you know, whatever, and bringing everybody, and again, it's an induction of order. It's, it's bringing order into the field until everybody feels good. My goodness me. So when you talked about, it's, it's, it's sort of mind-blowing, this idea of time and space that you're bringing into this conversation that you know it is all now everything exists in this moment that has ever existed yes and we have the potential therefore sometimes I think things feel so out of our hands because there's just so much you know whether it's so much healing to be done or so much trauma potentially within our epigenetic all of these fields but what you're saying is the potential is so beautiful because it is all here now for us to work with and bring order to. Yes, I mean, you can work in the present to transform the past and the future because if we don't do this work, we pass these same problems down to future to our children, or to future generations. So we're, we're working in the present to transform the past and the future. Absolutely. It's utterly beautiful. I use sound to amplify the family and ancestral field and working with each person and because I find that's very, very important. So I developed this very magical way of doing this work. And I do this, I mean, I'm doing this online at the moment. You know, since the pandemic, I've, I've been giving workshops every every month online on Zoom. Um, one month, it'll be Healing Voice, where I'm teaching the harmonics, the overtone chanting. And one month, it'll be Family Constellations. And um, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And if, if anybody wanted to check it out, they can go to my website, healingvoiceoneword.com or email me at info at Healing Voice. And uh, it's all there. And, um, and, then, and then in the fall and the spring, I'm going to be doing um, a face-to-face -face family constellation workshop in London, a week of that work. Yeah, in the autumn and, and, and in the spring. Wow, and that will be bringing in the overtone chanting in with the, the family constellations, so all of the work together. Well, actually, the chanting that I do in the, in the, fa in the family constellations tends to be more mantric um, than overtone chanting. Um, but we, well, we do do some when we're amplifying the field, but, but, the, but the, 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 most of the chanting I do is, is mantric chanting. Mantra is very interesting because... You know, when we sing in the West, you, you know, you, you have time signatures, which tend to be related to dances. But, but mantra is a very interesting phenomenon because it corrals the mind. Because the words are repeated um, uh, again and again and again, and it can, be, it can be loud, it can be quiet, it can be silent, it can be anything. 
um, but essentially they're nonsense words. So we don't understand. They may have a meaning. They may have each word may have a meaning. There's an intention there which we may know, um, but they're usually in archaic languages, almost always, as is all litur liturgy. Um, and so it's it's repeated, and it's not it's not affecting the, our logical mind because it's not in a language. It's in an archaic language so that we know the intention of, but not the literal meaning of usually. And, and so it stops the mind going off on a tangent. You know, it keeps the mind in, in the center. And so it's a very, very powerful form of chanting. And so I tend to do a, a form of mantric chanting in the family constellations. Beautiful. Beautiful. And so um, we're going to have links also to where you can find Jill and, um, and where we can do workshops and online work with Jill. I mean, this is such, this for me is the, the cutting edge of, of healing, really. It doesn't get, it doesn't get more exciting or, uh, you know, more potential than this, I don't think. So yeah, thank you. And I'd love to talk to you more and more about all this. I could talk to you all day and hear all of this. It's just, it's just the deepest, most beautiful stuff. You're welcome. You're very welcome. Living Medicine was sponsored by Pure Living. To find out more about Pure Living and its products, go to pureliving.com. That's P-I-O-R living.com. <laughs>